Welcome to another edition of Unwinding. I'm your host, Alex Folsom, and this month's episode features Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Molly Zahn. We chat about her latest book, Genres of Rewriting in Second Temple Judaism, how she first became interested in religious studies, what students can gain from taking religious studies classes, and a lot more. As a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher, and you can also find it on Spotify. We're also on social media under the handle KU College on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, where our social media guru, Aspen Grinder, posts lots of cool stuff featuring campus scenes, outstanding students, groundbreaking research, and other things happening in and around the college. Enjoy our episode with Professor Molly Zong. here today with Molly Zahn, who is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies. Professor Zahn, thanks for joining us. How's everything going? Uh, It's going well, Alex. Thanks. So let's start, you know, we always like to start these with a little bit about you as a person before you came to KU. Like, what was your path to ending up in Lawrence? Uh, Sure. Yeah. um, I, I grew up in central Wisconsin, listeners might hear a little a little upper midwest twang in there um and i I did my undergrad at the university of minnesota and was was planning to do to study music um and environmental studies actually and um happened to take a couple of classes um in um on on ancient christian and jewish texts on on the text of the bible in the at minnesota was the department of classical and near eastern studies but just got really hooked on um, the study of this ancient literature, this ancient religious literature, and um, decided to pursue graduate study and actually had the opportunity to go and study at Oxford in the UK for my master's degree. um, And then came back and did my PhD at the University of Notre Dame. um, Really got interested in the the Dead Sea Scrolls at the tail end of my undergrad and then um, pursued that um, in my master's degree and then my then my PhD work um, and then I uh, ended up in Kansas after that starting in about 2008 so that was my that was my path you were at Oxford um, you know obviously you're studying in a different country um, did you was that experience any different than what your other work had been so far yeah um, the the structure, I mean, and for sure, being the beginning of my graduate study, um, studying in the UK is is a much different system um, than American universities, in particular, the graduate experience. You have a lot less time in the classroom. Um, some feel sometimes like I didn't have, I, I had very small um, tutorial experiences with professors and had a lot of time to do my own um, pursue my own research, which was really um, a wonderful, a wonderful experience for me, um, for people that that have things they want to pursue and just need the time to to read and explore them. Um, Oxford really is an ideal situation. So that was, um, I think, definitely less sort of 
in class time than what you would have in an American program, but um, a lot more time to just explore your own interests and of course the incredible resources of you know one of the best universities in the world. So it was it was really good. Yeah, that's so you know coming to religious studies a little later in your undergrad career, did was Oxford something that you know you when at what point did you know that Oxford was a place you wanted to attend? Well, it. I actually ended up applying for a couple of um, national scholarships to go to the UK um, and actually won a Rhodes Scholarship, um, which is based at Oxford, so that was kind of my, my choice. But um, Oxford has um, a really incredible history, um, both their theology department, where, where study of the Bible is, is housed, and then their Oriental Institute um, and their Jewish Studies program. Um, so all of those, all of those together made Oxford really a, a unique um, and, and in some ways unparalleled place to, to form the next stage in my research. Um, so, you know, when you made the jump to Notre Dame, um, obviously Notre Dame being a Catholic school, was that part of the reason you went there? Or is it just in, just because that's, you know, the program you wanted to be in? No, really, the real reason I chose Notre Dame is because it um, had at the time two of the best scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the world, um, both working at the same university. And uh, this is uh, Jim Vanderkam, who became my advisor, and Jean Ulrich, with whom I also worked closely. They had both been very involved in the publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so working with them gave me just this, this ability to, 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 to join a community of scholars that they were a part of that were really at the, at the cutting edge of research on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so Notre Dame was, was simply the best place for me to be um, in terms of my, what I wanted to do in my doctorate. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned a lot about studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. Can you give us, you know, a little bit about what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Sure. The Dead Sea Scrolls are um, uh, the name given to a, 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 an archaeological discovery, really, a, a cache of manuscripts, um, close to 900 ancient manuscripts. Um, and they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls because they were found at a site, Bron, which is on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, just, just a little bit south, a few miles south of the city of Jericho. Um, and they are as I mentioned, ancient manuscripts, most of them are about 2,000 years old. They date from uh, um, between about 250 BCE to about 100 CE after the turn of the era. Um, they're mostly written in Hebrew. Some are written in Aramaic or Greek. Um, they're basically, well, they're mo almost all religious texts. There's a few sort of contracts and documentary things. Um, they include texts, our earliest texts of the Hebrew Bible, what, what Christians refer to as the Old Testament, um, but also a lot of early Jewish religious texts, some of which we knew about before and some of which we didn't know about before. So it's been a really revolutionary um, discovery for the study of early Judaism and for the study of the development of the books that ended up in Christian and Jewish Bibles. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, Genres of Rewriting in Second Temple Judaism. You, you found that some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, or maybe a lot of them, had been 
the things that they were copying down, they were rewriting them as they were copying them down. Can you kind of get into what you were able to find? Yeah, so I've been interested in this phenomenon of rewriting, which I'm, I'm, I'm not at all the first person to, to notice this, but as scrolls were, were found and were published, um, one of the very many interesting things is that um, they showed this phenomenon of rewriting, and it was noticed first with regard to copies of biblical books and, and, and new works that were based on biblical books um, that actually like change the text of biblical books as, as they're familiar to us. So I'll, I'll give a couple examples, a book or a text that I've worked on is called the temple. And it's called that because it has this, most of it is taken up by this, um, uh, basically instructions for the Israelites to build a temple when they enter into the promised land. And it's set on, it's actually in the voice of God speaking from Mount Sinai. Um, so giving this revelation about this temple, and then at the end of the temple scroll, and actually in, in earlier parts too, it's actually, it's reusing parts of the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and at the end, it actually takes like several chapters, like 10 or 12 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, and just kind of puts it there and changes some things, takes out some laws, adds some laws that aren't there in Deuteronomy. Um, and all of this is presented as, this is what God said on Mount Sinai. Um, and so when I first encountered this text as an undergrad, I kind of I was like, how could people do this to the text of scripture, right? Because in, um, in, in Christian and Jewish tradition for thousands of years, the, the emphasis, right, is, is you, don't, you don't change the text of the Bible. The text is revealed and, and humans are not supposed to mess with that. You can interpret it, but um, you don't go and like, rewrite what God said at Mount Sinai. So I was really fascinated by this. And, and as I moved on, I, I, I learned that this, this phenomenon is actually quite widespread. And so you actually find, so, so the Temple Scroll is its own sort of independent text that uses biblical materials. Um, there are also, we have one of the cool things about the Dead Sea Scrolls is we found multiple copies of books of the Bible, and these copies are, are a thousand years earlier than our previously earliest Hebrew copies of, of the text of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and we can see, see differences and changes that, that scribes introduced in the course of copying. And so we can see how the texts evolved. Um, so, so that phenomenon in biblical texts, but also in basically my point in the book is that almost every text that we have evidence for, we see this process of sort of ongoing rewriting and development and texts made out of earlier texts, that this is really how texts were built and shaped in ancient Judaism. So with that, you know, as you were saying, you know, how can someone, this is supposed to be the word of God, how can it be rewritten? You know, with the greater context of, you know, the Old Testament, um, you know, what do you say to someone who does start to question that? Like, how is this oral tradition supposed to be taken as the word of God if it's constantly being, you know, kind of changed or uh, rewritten in those ways? Right. I, um, um, when I talk to students about these texts and, and I, I show them the kinds of differences between manuscripts and so forth, um, many students you know, haven't, haven't had a chance to, to think about these issues at historical context and, and what they're coming with is a, is a 
a Christian or Jewish notion of the revelation of scripture, which, and even people that aren't religious in our society, you know, if you ask somebody like, where did the Bible come from? You know, people, people don't have, don't understand what the evidence really looks like. And so um, I can show them these texts and say like, well, what's the, you know, what's the explanation here? Um, I, you know, in, in my research, I'm, I'm, I'm not addressing questions of faith, so I'm not telling people what they should believe. Um, what I do say to students who I know sometimes are struggling with this is that within the tradition, um, there are lots of, historically speaking, like if you look at the history of Christian theology, there's lots of different ways of thinking about what revelation is. And so the idea that the words of the Bible are are literally the words that God, you know, that God intended, that God inspired or sort of planted in the minds of the scribes to write down. That's one view that's that's pretty common in certain denominations of Protestantism, but it's not the only view at all. And so um, in, in other traditions like the Catholic tradition, the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, the Orthodox, Orthodox Christian tradition, there are, there's much more of a sense of progressive revelation or that, that that God through the Holy Spirit continues to inspire um, God's people um, and lead them into deeper understanding. And so if that's the model of revelation, then you can look at the Bible and say, yes, this is inspired, this contains God's re revelation, but we can allow for the human role in that process. Um, and so I try to just make, make clear to students that this, you know, for, and there are there are some people for whom this kind of evidence it's like you know how can you believe that that God is behind this if humans are just changing stuff all the time like there are certainly people who who come to that conclusion but there are very very many people devoted Christians and Jews who continue to work with this material and continue to have a, have a sense of revelation that allows for God to still be involved in 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 disclosing revelation to humans. So it, it doesn't have to be a deal breaker <laughs> if, yeah. if you don't want it to be. Well, that, I think that's, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's really interesting, the kind of thing you talked about. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you deal with in, in a class like religious studies or in a, um, st a field like religious studies where there is a lot of personal um, feeling around a lot of this stuff you're going to be researching for people, you know, in your classes and those kinds of things. How do you make that so that they can feel comfortable, you know, doing the work in the class, but also not feel like they're being attacked for what they believe? Sure. Um, and it's a good question. And it's one that's, you know, it's, it's, it's always an issue. And one of the, one of the fascinating and, and really great things about teaching at KU is that I, I always have students from a, from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, um, so I'll always have students in the class who have a religious connection with the text or, you know, want to take a class on the Bible for religious reasons or because of their religious background. And then I will always have students in the class that are not members of a religious community or have, you know, have um, decided that whatever religion they grew up with is not for them or whatever. So I always have, and I always have different kinds of Christians. I have Jewish students, I have Muslim students, I have, you know, other backgrounds. And so it's always a, um, it's always a, a mix of perspectives. And I build on like, what we do here is study these texts and learn from these texts in common. And so 
I'm not going to approach these texts in a way that makes any particular faith assumptions. And so I try to really get people to understand what it means to look at a text historically, to look at it without, not that you would, not that people can't make these, you know, sort of come to these faith conclusions later or bring their own identity to the text, but say for the purposes of this class, we're going to look at these texts um, in a way that, that doesn't assume any any particular faith perspective so that we can all talk about them and learn about them together. Um, so a way that I, I feel has been successful for most of my students and I feel like I've had good um, reactions from both students that are not religious and students from religious backgrounds. And this is a way really to learn about the text and deepen their understanding um, no matter what their background. And, and the other thing that I always make clear about the discipline of religious studies, um, whether you're studying biblical texts like, like my research focuses on, or whether you're studying um, Judaism or Islam or, or any other Hinduism or, or any other religious tradition, is that religious studies is about, like we're not studying theology, we're not studying what God really is or what like the ultimate reality is. Um, that's actually more philosophy. But um, we're studying how people are religious, right? We're studying religion as an aspect of human culture. So we're asking questions about what people, not like, not what, is, what God is like, but what do people say about God? You know, not, is this text really revealed? But what have people said about this text and how have people used this text in their lives? Um, and so that's another way I think that by framing the question and making we're not making any claims about ultimate reality, but we're studying how humans have understood these issues and expressed themselves religiously in different cultures and different places. That, that, that's another way of getting everybody on the same page and allowing, allowing learning to happen, so to speak. That's a really great answer. And I think that um, is something that's really interesting when it comes to, you know, even um, other you know, areas of study on campus, you know, like political science and those kinds of things, people come in with, you know, strongly held beliefs. And it's not that the class is going to try to change anything. It's to give you perspective on what other people believe. And I think that's something that is uh, kind of fun about, you know, doing something like in the liberal arts where you can kind of touch on all those different areas from different perspectives. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls and you're obviously studying them and the changes made to them. Um, are you able to, how are you actually like doing the reading on them? Are you looking at PDFs? Are you, you know, recreations of them? Like what do you use to actually study them? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there, there's two primary ways. Um, the first, the first or sort of basic way to do it is um, basically all of the Dead Sea Scrolls have been, have been studied and published that is, scholars have looked at all the fragments, read them, put the pieces together that they think go together. And, and there are some manuscripts that are like nice, like you would imagine a scroll, a sort of contiguous text, but most of them are in pieces, like little pieces sometimes. So there was an enormous amount of work to just figure out what went with what um, and, 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 and sort of transcribe them. So the, the first thing I would do now is to look at a in Hebrew of the text that would just be in a printed book or 
Um, so I have a lot of those, you know, on my shelves in my office that I can't really get to. <laughs> um, um, but also, you know, then obviously electronic format. Um, so you can look at, at these, these earlier editions of the text and they'll often be accompanied by a translation if it's a difficult text or whatever. Um, but the other step is to look at, at photographs. Um, and, you know, looking at the originals can be great, but actually, I mean, other than that, you have to go to Israel. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a travel challenge. Um, but there have been um, wonderful photographs available of, the, of all the scrolls actually from, from the beginning when they were, there was a series of photographs taken in the 50s and 60s that are still used, but in the last 10 years, um, the Israel Antiquities Authority in partnership with Google has actually re-photographed all of the scrolls in these amazing high definition um, um, photographs and, and you know, infrared and full spectrum and all these different technologies, and they're all online um, and freely available. And so, um, when I need to look at the actual manuscript and, and see what's actually going on there, um, these photographs are available and they've really been an incredible resource for, for scholars. I did not know that they had done that. That's really cool um, that they're available for everyone. So, um, you know, obviously since you're looking at, you know, these documents and as you said, they're freely available and that kind of stuff, I'm guessing that, you know, the social distancing with the pandemic from COVID, has it disrupted your research at all? Or are you able to still do the work you've been doing? Um, aside, I, think, so I should say aside from the personal aspect of like dealing with living in a pandemic, but you know, like when you're actually trying to work, are you still able to do your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, humanity scholars are in a better position than, you know, people that need their lab or need, you know, research equipment or whatever that's on campus. You know, most of what we do is books and, um, you know, electronic resources, databases, and so forth. So from that perspective, you know, there's not a sort of structural disruption. Um, yeah, you're right. A lot of the, a lot of the disruption has just been um, life and, you know, in, in, in the spring, my kid was home from school and all of this and um, having, you know, having to move classes online and all of that. But um, the, the, the style of the research and the structure of the research, there's, um, um, you know, and especially now that the library is, is Watson is, is um, allowing you to collect, they'll, they'll get materials for you um, so you can pick them up and, and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I have, I have most of what I need, fortunately. So I want to ask about, and this is something that we can definitely not delve into if you think it's too tedious, but I kind of want to talk about how you structure a book like this, like how you decide this is something you want to write about and how, you know, what that process looks like in the beginning and how you end up with a completed book. Because um, I find that really fascinating with this kind of research is like, this is something I'm sure you've been thinking about for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you, how do you create something like this? Sure, no, that, I mean, I think that's actually a really interesting question and something that um, nobody tried, very few people try to think about until they start trying to do it. And then, like, oh. <laughs> um, you know, so, and in my case, this really, it really was a challenge. My first, my dissertation, which was published as a book, was a very, so my first book was very, like it was very specific, it was very technical, it was a study of five specific manuscripts um, that hadn't been studied very much before. Um, so, 
you know, I did these close reading and what are they, what are they, you know, what's the text, what are they related to? I chose a couple of other texts to compare them to. Um, but so like the structure of the book was very clear of the first book was very clear from the beginning. It's like, okay, I do an introduction. I, I do a, you know, a chapter on this text, a chapter on this text, you know, comparison number one, comparison number two, conclusion, we're done. Um, and this, this project, I knew I wanted it to be broader. I knew I wanted to bring together a lot of different types of rewriting um, that I saw happening in different types of texts um, in within the, the context of ancient Judaism. Um, and so, but then figuring out exactly which texts I wanted to talk about, like which groups, groups of text, which types of text, and what the sequence would be and what kind of methodological issues, like what had to be the sort of introductory stuff before I got to the actual um, sort of textual analysis part um, was much more complicated in this case. Um, so it, it was a long process. I went through, I mean, at least four or five different kind of chapter outlines in my head and sometimes written down of like what I thought this was thing was going to look like. And even, I think I submitted the manuscript to the publisher in about two years ago, that at the end of the summer in 2018. And, and even throughout that summer, I was like, you know, moving parts of chapters around and thinking, you know, oh, how is this going to work? And, um, and it's, it, 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 it just is a long process. And I think things have to evolve and, and, and take, take the time that they take. And, and it's probably not like, there's probably not one perfect structure for a book like this. Um, and, and so there are probably multiple possibilities, but, um, yeah, it's a, um, trying to think through what readers, want to know and how to present things in a way that makes sense is, is definitely a, a, you know, one of the more challenging parts of, of getting from your ideas and your maybe smaller studies or, you know, presentations you've given at conferences or whatever to something that looks like a finished product. So with a book like this, you know, are, are you, obviously, if you know you're writing, you know, a fiction book and you're working with a publisher, the publisher has editors who will go through and make revisions or suggest things that need to be changed or whatever. When you're doing something like this, that's more of a scholarly, scholarly work. Who's doing that kind of editorial process for you, helping you kind of make sure that your arguments are clear and, you know, giving you pointers, but also kind of understands the context of what you're working on. Right. Yeah. That's, that's another very good question. Um, so the main process is that, you know, academic publishers, like in this case, Cambridge University Press, they have a religion editor who works to acquire new titles. And, and those, those individuals are knowledgeable. And in my case, I think uh, Beatrice Real at Cambridge, my editor, um, has, a, has a, a fair amount of background in, in um, Judaism um, and, and Christianity in terms of her own training. But she's got to cover, you know, all of religious studies. Um, what they will do though, is when, you know, when a man admitted, they will send it out to um, external referees who will read the manuscript. So other professionals, other professors basically, um, who are known in the field and they actually, the publisher will actually solicit suggestions from you. Like, who do you think would be a good person to read this? 
Um, and they'll probably try to find some people on their own to, you know, just to, to make things, make things fair. Um, but, and then the, so, so those are the people who are really the critical eye who know the field and, um, and can look at it and say like, okay, how is this working? And I was, I was fortunate. I don't know. I, I, I don't know who they are. They're anonymous referees. Right. But, but both of them gave me really helpful feedback, very specific feedback, um, you know, were positive, but said like, this could be even stronger if you did X or what about a consideration of Y thing. And so that's the stage at which you really get a lot of detailed feedback. Um, and then, you know, and then you make the revisions and, and send it in again. And then you'll work with copy editors and, and people who will maybe address the language, um, you know, technical kind of writing things. But um, the main sort of feedback process is, is through that, that um, anonymous review stage. I think that's really interesting. That's something I've always kind of wondered when it comes to more scholarly works, because, you know, I've done a few of these and, and talked to um, some people who have recently published books, and I never thought to ask that until right now, so I'm glad I did. Um, well, I also want to talk a little bit about um, if, you know, as being a um, podcast out of the the dean's office, our, one of our goals with this is to kind of help students, if they're interested in these kinds of things, um, find ways they can interact with this kind of study. So if there are students who want to, you know, get involved with religious studies at KU, what would be your advice for them? I mean, obviously they can enroll in classes, but like if they want to interact with your research specifically, like what's something they can do to kind of interact with the work you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely that, you know, the first step is, is honestly to, to, to see if, you know, find a class that looks interesting and take it and get some background in, you know, especially critical study of the Bible, kind of like we were speaking about earlier, that the, the way we look at ancient texts in, in the field of religious studies or academic biblical studies is different than the way, you know, everybody, the thing about the Bible is that like everybody, everybody already has an opinion on the Bible. It's not like, you know, it's not like you, you kind of took a, a, an English class and encountered some author that you've never heard of kind of on a fluke. And you were like, wow, this is, you know, everybody, has some idea about the Bible, right? Probably, you know, whatever it is. And so um, understanding the approaches we take um, and, and, and what it really means to do historical study is, is kind of the first step. And then, um, you know, and in, in religious studies, we're, um, we're, we're pretty small, but we, you know, that's really an advantage to students who want to get involved with us. Um, um, work, uh, either do like a directed readings with us if, you know, you take and say you're really interested and you want to pursue something, you know, we're all really interested to work with students who want to delve deeper into a particular, excuse me, into a particular that maybe is not um, dealt with thoroughly in a class kind of situation. Um, the other, honestly, the, the other important thing, this isn't true for all aspects of religious studies, but it's definitely true for, for my area for biblical studies is study of the, of the ancient languages. Um, and so for students who are really thinking like, wow, I really love this. I have had some experience with um, critical or historical study of biblical texts or ancient texts. Um, if you really want to go forward with that, you, you know, being able to read them in their original languages is, is really important. And so um, thinking about studying uh, Hebrew and Greek um, is is something to think about if you're an undergrad that, that is really interested. Um, so, so I took 
I took two and a half years of Hebrew as an undergrad um, and didn't end up studying Greek in my career. But, um, but, but for students who are really interested, like finding a way to start with, with Hebrew and Greek is, um, is key. And this is true within religious studies for other, other religious traditions that, you know, are in foreign languages, um, whether it's um, Hinduism or South Asian religions where you might want to study Hindi or Sanskrit or um, uh, Chinese religion or, or, you know, whatever, or um, Islam and, and, you know, beginning to study Arabic. If, if you're really interested in these traditions, it's, it's, it's to start thinking about the languages. That's a great answer. Um, you know, I also want to ask a little bit about uh, grads, graduate study at KU in the Department of Religious Studies. Um, you know, if someone wants to do graduate study at KU, you know, what are some of the ways that KU is kind of leading in this field? Like, what are some of the stronger areas of study in, the, in our department here? Uh, yeah, um, so we're a small department. What do we have, six or seven faculty right now? Um, and we don't have a PhD program, but we do have a master's program. Um, and what our master's program has done a really excellent job with is um, giving students the foundation they need for further study. So a master's degree, you can use a master's degree in religious studies for all kinds of things. And we have, we have graduates who are working with nonprofit organizations. We have graduates who are in journalism. We have graduates that are in chaplaincy. Um, and we have, a, and, and, and really, a good portion, at least half of our master's graduates, uh, do go on to PhD programs. Um, and so what we're able to do is provide a strong foundation in religious studies theory and method across all kinds of, you know, the, the discipline of religious studies is quite broad, right? Um, so give some foundation for the field as a whole, but also allow students to study, to dive into their own areas and build those skills that will allow them to successfully apply to and complete a PhD program. Um, so for instance, if a student comes and wants to work with me, um, they'll take the general courses in, um, in our field. They'll take our, our um, theory and method, and I can't remember the name of it. Um, theories and methods in religious studies are sort of um, main intro graduate course, and they'll take a variety of courses in different areas, but they'll also work quite closely with me to develop their language skills, for instance. So I'm often doing um, Hebrew as a directed study, um, like in Hebrew, reading biblical texts in Hebrew with graduate students, or helping them pursue a specific area within biblical studies or, or uh, early Jewish studies, um, so that they develop their language skills and their research skills and their writing skills, so that then when they're done with their program in, in two years or whatever, then they're in a really good place to go on and apply to the best PhD programs. And um, for, for a program as small as ours, we really have a, a great track record in getting students into, we've, we've been fortunate to work with some wonderful students that have gone on to the best PhD programs in religious studies in the country, um, Duke, Indiana, University of Texas, um, um, and others, and so Brown, um, University of Virginia, this is all just in the last five years or so. So um, we, you know, we, we don't have the final, we don't have the terminal degree, 
can't get a PhD from our program, but you can come in from whatever, wherever point you're at and gain the skills that you need to go on and, and take the next step. I really like also that you said, you know, at the beginning that it, you, even if you just decided, I just want the master's and I'm going to get out, that, that the skills you'll learn and even the skills you'll learn as an undergrad, you will be able to apply, you know, the research and the writing and the communication skills you'll get in that to a broader, you know, something maybe even outside a scholarly, you know, career. I think that's a really so important thing. This is thing really important. Yeah, this is worth stressing because um, obviously, you know, most of the students in our classrooms are, you know, a lot of them are not even majors, but those who are majors and those who do the master's degree, many, many of them, you know, not everyone should want to go on, you know, and be a, be a professor of religious studies. <laughs> um, but the, the point is that these skills that you're gaining, you know, you're, you're developing critical thinking skills in a really distinctive way in religious studies, because you are dealing with like, these these values and and assumptions and beliefs that are so deeply held um, and so influential in our culture that breaking them down and understanding okay what are the influences here what are the historical influences what are the social influences um, that that cause people to you know construct their religious lives in a particular way um, you know so there's there's studies the best like what the best pre-law degrees are and it's always religious studies and classics because they sort of develop those close reading skills and those sort of analytical skills um, and for anyone wanting to go on in any kind of field where you deal with human beings um, whether that's pre-med or journalism or whatever um, just having this knowledge of the role that that religion plays in people's lives and the different ways that can play out um, I think is incredibly useful. And we're starting to see, you know, more and more these, these statements about how important that kind of fluidity that of a liberal arts degree, um, and I would say religious studies as a, as a key component of that, really how that, that does set you up for success in ways that, you know, it's not, it's not this linear trajectory, like I'm going to the education program and then I'm gonna become a teacher, which is great. Um, it's a little more so, you know, there's there's always that uncertainty for for students and for families, I think, but but you are getting the skills that are going to set you up and allow you to succeed in, in a whole number of fields. Yeah, that's one of the things we've really been kind of talking about is with other, you know, people within this kind of on the podcast is, you know, with a liberal arts degree or liberal arts and sciences degree, yeah, you don't graduate and say like, I'm going to be this, but you do get to say like, I'm going to try this. And if I don't like it, I have the skill set to pivot and try this other thing. And I think that's something that's really interesting. Even, you know, a lot of people may look at something like, you know, religious studies and they, and they will think like, well, I don't want to be a religious scholar. Or I don't want to be, you know, someone who just only reads biblical texts, but it's, it's so much more than that. I think it's really great that you summed it up so nicely that it does really give you those skills to do a lot of different things. Yeah, I'll, I'll just briefly mention one of our master's students from a few years ago, um, Rachel Mislevy, um, works now with a, a nonprofit in Kansas called the Climate and Energy Project, as, a, as, it, as it sounds like, is a, um, trying to work towards climate solutions with, with Kansans, um, especially rural Kansans. And she has spoken repeatedly about, you know, so she's not dealing with like religion per se every day. 
but she she often talks about how the 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 process, the, the skills that she gained, she was an undergrad and then took some time off and came back from her master's degree, that understanding, you know, religious thinking has been so key to her being able to talk to people from different backgrounds, from different political mindsets, and sort of make connections and, and build. So, so you, know, you know, that's just one of my kind of my, my go-to example of, um, you know, great things and different things, but not necessarily those lot linear kinds of trajectories that that you can get out of religious studies. That's really great to hear. Well, thank you um, so much for talking with me today. I've really, I've, this was a great conversation. I'm really, you know, interested to myself personally delve into more about this topic because I find it really fascinating. Um, is there any last words you'd like to provide for anyone out there listening about anything before we sign off? Um, I don't think so. Unwinding is a production of KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research. Unwinding is a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. The conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries.